you read the Bible literally? Do you take the Bible literally? Some of you answered. But I think most of you failed to answer because you realize that that question is so often used as a trap. Whenever someone asks you, do you read the Bible literally, very rarely are they asking you sincerely. And very often do they recognize the false dilemma that they have asked that question with. Because here's what we're stuck with when someone asks that question, do you believe the Bible literally? If you say yes, if you take the Bible literally, if you say yes, then what they're going to do is they're going to start rattling off tons of places in Scripture where we patently do not interpret those things literally. There are places all throughout our Bible that is not intended to be interpreted literally. So if you take the Bible literally, now you're a fool because those things are clearly not literal. So you say, okay, well, I don't want to do that. So no, I, I don't take the Bible literally. Well, now what have you done? Anything goes. I believe whatever I want to believe. I can say I'm a Christian and make this Bible say whatever I want to say. And if you start opening it up and saying, well, it technically says this and says this. Whoa, 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 whoa. Why are you being so literal? You see, it's a trap. That's why you'll find many different theologians. I'm sure you've probably maybe at one time listened to a theologian who have, who's tried to give you some kind of replacement answer. They'll say things like, well, I read, I take, I read the Bible as it is, as it presents itself to me. All right, I take the Bible at face value, right? We come up with different answers to try to get around the dichotomy that's been presented. Well, this question of how we read the Bible, how we interpret the Bible, is important for us given Paul's next argument in Galatians chapter 4. So we're going to discuss at a very, very basic, simple level this issue of hermeneutics which is the study of biblical interpretation. Everyone in this room, whether you have ever thought about it before or not, has a hermeneutical grid. The second you've ever in your life opened up the Bible, read it, and interpreted it to mean something, you have, whether again, whether you've thought about it or not, assumptions and presuppositions and ideas that inform how the words on the paper go into your eyes and are processed in your brain. And I think I don't need to make too much of a point to prove to you that our hermeneutics are so important to our Christianity. Because if, if you believe the Bible is a rule of faith for your Christian life, then how you interpret the Bible has, will, will entirely define your Christian life. In other words, how, whatever we make the Bible mean is ultimately what our Christianity is. So the issue of hermeneutics is huge it's massively important. And as I said, it's, 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 it's something that can be discussed at a very deep, long level, and we're obviously not going to do that. That's not the purpose of sermon preaching. We'd be here for months if we want to do that. You could literally take seminary classes on hermeneutics that will take months, and even by the end of it, you'll still have more questions. But we're going to just cover some very important basics when it comes to interpreting the Bible, specifically the Old Testament. In, in, in other words, what I'm telling you before we read our text is today's sermon is going to be slightly different because we're not going to so much look at what Paul argues. We're going to focus entirely on how Paul argues. Next week, we'll look at the what. Next week, we'll actually interpret his argument and say, this is what Paul said. This is his message. This is his meaning. 
But this is such a peculiar moment in the New Testament. I think we need to take a step back and cover the first step first, which is how he argues. Not so much what he's arguing. We'll do that. But today we're just going to look at how Paul argues. If you would open your Bible to Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. Paul has been making an argument throughout this entire book, although the, the, the arguments within the argument have shifted. Right? He began by talking about his authority, proving his authority. And then he began by making logical and scriptural proofs that we are justified by faith alone, that we receive the Spirit by faith alone, that we are children of Abraham by faith alone. And then last week we saw he kind of took a sentimental break. He took a break from the logic and from the reasoning and from the biblical arguments and he sort of appealed to their heart. So what happened? We were friends. What happened? And now in chapter 4, he's going to get back on track and he's going to go back into his Bible. And he's going to argue from the Bible again, but he's going to argue in a way that we have not seen him argue up to this point. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. If you would follow along, for these are the very words of God. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. We will stop there, and we will let Paul finish his argument next week. But I want you to notice, he begins in verse 21 by saying, those who desire to be justified by the law, those who would seek to put Jew and Gentile back under the law, Paul says, I have a question for you. Do you even read that law you care so much about? Do you even interpret it? Do you even know it? Do you even know what it says? Because if you did know what it said, you would believe my point. You would believe in my gospel. So he takes them to the Old Testament. He takes them into their Bibles. And he doesn't go to some random, obscure passage. He doesn't go to some passage that's not even under discussion. We've been talking throughout a good portion of this letter about the issue of Abraham and his descendants. That's been one of the primary themes of Galatians. How is it that we become children of Abraham? So what text does he go to? He goes to Genesis and he goes to the story of Abraham and his children and the promise. So it's, a, it's, a, it's the relevant passage in the debate. It's probably a passage that the Judaizers were utilizing for their own purposes. He goes to the Old Testament, he goes to the passage at hand, but what does he do with it? He tells them, the reason you fail to understand this is because you're not reading it the right way. It's meant to be read, as the ESV says, allegorically. Or if you have a different translation, sometimes it'll say something a little bit more broad, like figuratively, or symbolically, or typologically. But the point is that Let's look for a minute at how Paul argues. He takes them to the Bible and he stays in the Bible. He doesn't go outside of the Bible. But notice, he implies a reading that essentially seems to indicate there's something not on the surface that is actually there. There's something that just a straight, literal reading of the passage won't give you, but you need to see it. Paul argues from the Old Testament in an allegorical sense. 
He utilizes an allegorical reading. Now, the word allegory has kind of narrowed its definition over time. The, the word that Paul used would have been a very broad use. Anything from allegory to typology to symbolically to spiritual, all of these words would sort of encompass what, encompass what Paul is communicating. Again, it's, it's basically a non-literal reading of the text. And this can freak conservative Christians out. This really can freak us out. Because of what we said at the very beginning. Well, if Paul's willing to do allegory, then isn't everything on the table at this point? This can be very, very intimidating. This can be very troubling. And the reason it can trouble us is because most conservative Christians, if, if you consider yourself conservative in your theology, you got that way because, without even knowing it, you read the Bible in a certain sense. And we call this the historical grammatical rule, method of interpretation. It, just as a brief side note, this actually isn't in my notes, so I'll be brief with this, but this is actually, this is for free. This is actually what the whole controversy over Supreme Court justices is all about. The whole debate about electing presidents to Supreme Court justices, people will phrase it like this. We want, we don't want liberal justices, we want conservative justices. We don't want conservative justices, we want liberal justices. That's how it's framed. But everyone knows we're kind of cutting to the chase when we say that. Because if we're all being honest with ourselves, we want justice to be impartial. We want justice to be blind. We don't really want liberal or conservative. If you were to ask the justices on the Supreme Court, do you think they would willingly say, I'm just a conservative hack. I just do whatever the conservatives want me to do. I'm just a liberal hack. Just whatever is the liberal reading, that's what I do. No, but we know that those words have become code for a method of interpreting the Constitution. When someone says they want a conservative judge, what they mean is I want a judge who applies certain principles to understanding the Constitution that will almost inevitably lead to certain results. What we're actually calling for are not conservative and liberals, but we're calling for a constitutional hermeneutic. When I've got this constitution in front of me, how am I supposed to interpret it? That's the issue. And for most of us, we interpret our Bible in a conservative manner. At least most of us in this church, not speaking across America. And we call that conservative method. It has a name, and it's called the historical grammatical method of interpretation. And like I said, we could get into a lot of detail about this, but the name sort of speaks for itself. In other words, when we interpret the Bible, there's two things that are very important. The historical context and the grammar, right? Like the, the grammar is obviously very important. If the word says cat, I'm not going to interpret it as a dog. That's not what the word cat means. All right, if it says cat, it's a cat. It's not a dog. Right? Is the grammar what it means? We can't allow some outside source to completely overthrow the grammar of a text. So the gr grammatical portion is very important. I mean, what does the text say? What do these words mean? But uh, in, in, in addition to that, though, we can't lose sight of historical context because the bottom line is that how words mean and what they're used and the controversies they're used in actually do affect those words. So we can't just say that this Bible came to us in a vacuum. It didn't just float down from heaven. It was written by men who had a context, a historical context, there was things going on, all of it. So the important thing that we want to learn is what did the author intend to say? And we think we get there by taking the grammar, what the words mean, the syntax, the structure, and putting it in its historical context. And that sort of gives us a general grid, an outline for where we can go and where we cannot go when it comes to interpreting our Bibles. 
But what you'll find interesting is even among theologians who, who will openly say, I interpret the Bible according to the historical grammatical interpretive method, you will still find debate even within that method as to how it is to be applied. And this is, the, by the way, the primary reason why we have dispensationalists and covenant theologians and new covenant theologians. If you don't know what those terms mean, that's okay. But I would argue that if you were to discover what they mean, the differences would ultimately come back to how I read my Bible. But they would both say historical grammatical. And so that's why uh, later theologians, more contemporary theologians, have added something to this equation that I personally am comfortable affirming. And that's that I personally read the Bible according to what's called the historical grammatical redemptive method of interpretation. The historical, grammatical, redemptive method of interpretation. And that takes one, uh, a final thing into play as we read our Bible. And I think next week this redemptive element will be seen in how Paul argues. So you're going to have to wait next week to see it in action. But what that means is that there's an additional way we have to see the Old Testament. Not just its historical, grammatical context, but we have to see the overall redemptive context as it connects to the New Testament. In other words, the New Testament is the part two of the Old Testament. It's the completed revelation. It's the Holy Spirit giving us fulfillment and interpretation. So the New Testament actually helps shape and form how we understand the old. And when we see the, the story play out, the gospel that the old has been prophesying, the Messiah, the old, when he comes and changes everything and things happen, that actually informs us about the Old Testament in ways we never saw before he showed up. Does that make sense? So there's a way of reading the Old Testament in the overall redemptive narrative of the whole scriptures that allows us to see things that before the advent of Christ we probably never would have seen. And again, I'll, I'll try to vindicate that more so next week, but the point is, is there is an additional element to the Old Testament, and one of the primary ways we get there is by, a, 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 according to literal, but going beyond that, to seeing a redemptive spiritual or a redemptive uh, allegorical, if you will, understanding. And that's exactly what Paul does. So in short, I'm saying this, that the Old Testament, in light of the redemption accomplished of Christ, in light of the coming new covenant, there is a spiritual, allegorical understanding of the Old Testament that actually brings a richer, more developed understanding of the entire revelation of God. And Paul is going to utilize that allegorical reading to make an, or, an argument. So obviously, in Paul's mind, this is not semantics. This is not a cheap trick. This is not anything goes. But Paul sees this as a airtight, logical reading of Scripture that will actually help refute my opponents. So it's a very legitimate reading, according to Paul. But I want us to spend the second half of our sermon, let me just clarify a few things this doesn't mean, in case you're sort of shaking in your boots right now. Here's what, we'll, we'll, again, we'll look at actually what Paul argues next week, but let me just clarify some things that an allegorical reading of the Old Testament does not do. Paul and the apostles would never do this. Number one, when we say that the Old Testament can be read allegorically, what we're not saying is that the history isn't real. Right? To say that this can be read allegorically is not saying that it's only an allegory. 
that there is no literal understanding of this, that there's no real historical understanding of this. So in other words, what, the little bit that we did see is Paul takes this story of Abraham and his two wives and then the two sons that came from each of those wives, and he says this can be interpreted allegorically. The women represent covenants. But here's what Paul is not going to argue, that Abraham didn't exist, that he's just a story that gives us this great allegorical meaning that he didn't actually have wives, he didn't actually have children, but these were just stories that were made up to tell us these truths allegorically. Right? In other words, the Old Testament is not like the Chronicles of Narnia. In case I don't mean to spoil or burst your bubble, but I just want you to know Chronicles of Narnia didn't actually happen. It didn't actually exist. There was no lion, there's no magic wardrobe that takes you to a place. It didn't actually happen, but we know that that story was made up to communicate the Christian story. So the Chronicles of Narnia is like an allegorical Christian story. That's not what Paul is claiming about the Old Testament. That it's just a bunch of made-up, non-true stories that teach us some great spiritual truth. So an allegorical reading doesn't cause us to reject literal reading. It's additional. It's an additional understanding. But clearly throughout the entire book of Galatians... The, the idea that what happened in Genesis was literal, real history, reliable, real history, is very important to Paul's ultimate argument. So again, we're not turning the entire Old Testament into fables and myths and fairy tales. It's real, historical, reliable, inerrant, infallible history with a literal understanding, but there are additional spiritual, typological understandings that are also present in the text. So Paul is not saying that it is only allegory. But here's another thing that would be reading too much into Paul's argument. It would not also not be appropriate to assume that Paul is saying that everything is allegorical. That every single word in every single book of Scripture can be read allegorically. In other words, the fact that Paul tells them, by the way, this, this needs to be read allegorically, implies that they're all under the assumption that that's not how you normally read the text. Right? The assumption is that the historical grammatical, we're just going to interpret things literally at face value, and then Paul will occasionally say, oh, by the way, there's a spiritual meaning here. In other words, when, when Paul wrote Galatians and he gave it to them, to the churches, he was not expecting them to read the book of Galatians allegorically. Right? In other words, they didn't get to what we call Galatians 3.1, which says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And they go, okay, so what, what does foolishness represent? And, and this says Galatians, but that's not literal. Paul doesn't want us to read our Bible literally. He's not literally talking about literal, real Galatians. So what could the region of Galatia represent? Paul assumes Galatians would not be read allegorically. So what we are not saying is that the whole Bible is just this one big allegory. That would be reading far too much into what Paul actually wrote. Paul just simply took one historical narrative and says there was a spiritual meaning to this. That doesn't necessarily give us license to assume the whole thing should be read allegorically. That the New Testament should all just, it's all just allegory. That's not the argument Paul makes. So he's not saying the history isn't real. He's not saying there's no literal meaning to these words. He's not saying that everything is allegory. And third, and this is probably the most important one, and this is the one that we don't have time to, you know, to, to, to exhaust every, every avenue of discussion. But it would also be reading too much into Paul's interpretive method to say this, that all allegorical interpretations are valid. Just because Paul utilized a spiritual reading of the Old Testament, 
does not mean that every time someone claims to read the Old Testament spiritually, they've done a good job at it. I guess uh, another way of saying this is that all good things can be abused. There are lots of things in life, abstract, material things, that in and of themselves are not bad. They can be used for good or they can be used for bad. And that's the spiritual allegorical reading. That's there. Paul sees it in the text. It's there. It's a good thing. But that doesn't imply that people can't abuse that and start just wildly going off course and making the Bible say whatever they want it to say. That, that does exist and it happens. And the fact that Paul utilized this kind of argument doesn't justify every attempt. There have been many, many times throughout church history where spiritual or allegorical interpretations have been presented that I myself would disagree with and many other people throughout church history disagreed with. This was especially prominent in many of the church fathers, uh, especially those who came after a man called Origen. Origen was a church father, although some people don't like to call him a church father because he eventually actually abandoned the faith. Um, But while he was professing Christianity, he was very influential on the faith, whether we like it or not. But he highly emphasized an allegorical reading of the Old Testament. But if you were to actually read most of Origen's writings, I think you would find, ooh, I don't know. I don't think that's what that was actually intending to say. Uh, You'll find church fathers, for example, who will try to prove Mary was a sinless human being from conception to death. And they'll do things like, well, the Ark of the Covenant was pure and unspotted. And the Ark of Covenant had the law of God. And Jesus came to fulfill the law. And he was in the pure Ark. So if Jesus was the pure law, then the Ark that he was in had to be pure. So Mary had to be pure. So allegorically, I've proved Mary is pure. I would disagree with that on other grounds. So the point that I'm making is, no, we are not, Paul is not saying, okay, free for all. The Bible gets to mean whatever you mean, whatever you want it to mean. And again, we could discuss, well, where are those boundaries? And that's where the big debate is. But we can at least agree with this broad principle that there is a spiritual redemptive element to our Old Testament. We have, Paul argues that, we have to see it. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that whatever, whatever we want goes. We can debate over where the boundaries are, but we need to begin by agreeing there are boundaries. And this has actually led some contemporary theologians to really overcorrect. And you'll, you'll find things, this is actually something I really believed for a long time, but was challenged by this text to reject, which is that, okay, there is an allegorical reading of the Old Testament, but because I'm not infallible and because it's easy for me to just do whatever I want with it, I, I don't have the business, the permission to, to read it that way. So there are people who say, we don't have the ability to do this on our own. Because again, where do you draw the line? Where do you draw those lines? So the only way I'm going to affirm an allegorical reading of Scripture is where the New Testament tells me to. So I'll affirm what Paul says next week. I'll affirm that. And the book of Hebrews talks about the whole law is types and shadows for the coming of Christ. So the Levitical sacrificial system was ultimately about Jesus. And so I can confidently say that because Hebrews tells me that. So again, the argument is unless the New Testament tells me where to find the symbolism, where to find the spirituality, where to find the allegory, I'm not going to try to go there myself. And admittedly, I mean, that has a lot of advantages. That makes life very simple. It makes life easier. But I don't actually think the text tells us to do that. And here's why. Look again at verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Paul does not think that he's giving these people some special revelation that they had no access to before he started speaking. 
Paul is holding these people accountable to have already seen this before he grabbed them by the hand and walked them through. Right? Why would he hold them accountable for something that they could not possibly have seen until he gave them this brand new revelation? And what he's saying isn't even truly revelation. Right? It's, it's the text. He, he's saying, uh, what I'm telling you is in the text. It's right there. Just read the law. Just read it. This isn't new revelation that came down from the sky. This isn't something that they weren't able to do. And Paul, no, Paul's saying, you should have understood this already. So I think Paul holds us accountable to seeing how the Old Testament, allegorically, spiritually, typologically, whatever word you want to use, the Old Testament has a meaning beyond its literal meaning that points us to Christ, that points us to the New Covenant, it points us to things, and I think Paul holds us accountable to find those. Even in the places where he doesn't explicitly walk our hands through. So this is something that we can do on our own. And so let me just conclude with some boundaries. Some important things to remember. Number one, it's important that as we do this, as we, we, we do want to take our cues from the apostles. Again, we don't have to, we can go into texts they never went into and find what's important there. But we want them to lead the way in showing us how to do it. We want their help and their aid. And I would argue that these are things I can confidently say when you study the, the big enterprise that is how the apostles utilized the Old Testament. By the way, just, just so you know how fun and exciting and complex this is, uh, D.A. Carson um, edited a book with some other theologians that take every case the Old Testament is, is quoted in the New and they sort of examine how it's used. And I'm pretty sure, I, I don't know, Jesse, you have that book. It's over a thousand pages long, right? I mean, this, the thing is just massive. So this, this is a big thing. They said, we're just skimming the surface, but I can confidently say after studying the, the, the Bible is... is as long as I have been, these are things that I can tell you the apostles would never give us permission to do. And the first one is, is we, we should never be comfortable sort of taking things outside of Scripture, things that we've determined from outside of Scripture, and then forcing them into the text, right? What does Paul say he's found? Paul didn't say, I, I read some, I had some new revelation from, from an angel, and now I'm going to go look for it in, in the Bible, Paul didn't say, I was, you know, I was doing some studies in the Greek philosophers, and they made a point I couldn't argue with. So I took the Greek philosophers and said, okay, well, how can I make the Bible speak this truth? Paul is not taking outside truths and showing us how, oh, look, the world was right. No, he said, he's getting it from the text. Do you not listen to the law? Have you not been reading your Bibles? This is from the text. So we're, we're, we're making the text make sense of itself. We're making the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. We're not imposing outside sources into it. That's not what Paul does. Related to that, but slightly different, is I'm going to argue, if you were to study all these cases, that the Old Testament, the allegorical, spiritual, typological reading of the Old Testament is always focused on new covenant gospel realities, not your personal circumstances. In, in other words, we want to read Christ, the gospel, and new covenant realities in the Old Testament. We don't want to read you into the Old Testament. I've got news, and I hope it doesn't hurt your feelings, but it might, okay? So brace yourselves. The Old Testament is not about you. It's not about you. It applies to you. 
It's for you. It's helpful. You need it. It's, it's, the, it's the primary. When Paul, tells, when Paul told Timothy that the scriptures are God-breathed and perfectly sufficient to make you capable to know all things, he, he was primarily talking about the Old Testament there. I'm not saying it, it's irrelevant and unimportant. It's so important to us. Paul's, Paul's entire argument has all come from the Old Testament thus far. It's very important. I'm not saying it's not important. But the stories of the Old Testament are not your stories. And here's why I say that. Because we have found in contemporary Christianity a great deal of narcissism when it comes to Bible interpretation and Bible preaching. It's incredible how often we try to make the Bible about me. We read ourselves and our personal circumstances in the text. That's not the kind of allegory that you ever find the apostles doing. Let me just give you the two most famous examples. This is done on a weekly basis in many, many churches. So these are just two. I can give you literally hundreds of examples if you'd like. Let me just give you two very popular ones. You might have a pastor open up to, uh, you know, Joshua and talk about how Joshua had to lead the people that Moses was not able to go in the promised land. Moses dies, so Joshua is the new leader, and he has to lead the people across the Jordan River and into the promised land. So what's the allegorical reading of that? Well, here's what it is. There was someone in your life who was holding you back like Moses was holding back Joshua. But God is providentially, miraculously, he is going to take care of that enemy in your life and he is going to give you the freedom and the power now to cross whatever it is that's holding you back from your destiny. So your promised land is that job promotion you've been hoping for. And the Jordan River are all those naysayers who tell you you're unqualified, you're not enough. But let me tell you right now, Joshua was given power by God to cross those naysayers, to cross that Jordan River and get his job promotion, enter into the destiny God has given him. You see, the Jordan River is not an analogy for whatever's holding you back personally. The promised land is not a spiritual metaphor of whatever it is you want. That's reading yourself into the text. But it's not about you. Or the more famous one is David and Goliath, right? You're David. Who are the Goliaths? What's the Goliath in your life that you need to destroy? And, and, and the rocks then symbolize whatever means you would use to destroy that Goliath. So whatever it is you're hoping for, there's a Goliath in front of it, and you need to use whatever God has given you to fling it at that Goliath. You get the point. That's an analogy, that, that is an allegorical reading of the Old Testament, but I would argue it's an inappropriate one. David and Goliath is not about my job promotion. Crossing the Jordan River is not about having children. Fulfilling whatever desire I want to fulfill. That's, you will never see the apostles interpret the Old Testament that way. There's, there's a specific person in the Galatian churches who has cancer and Paul promises him, you're going to overcome your cancer because I can prove it because David overcame his Goliath. Cancer is your Goliath, Demetrius. He never does that. So we need to avoid finding personal truths and personal circumstances in the Old Testament. Read the Bible with humility. It's not about you. That's okay. And that leads us into, in conclusion, what is it that we should find? What is it that we're seeking to see like the apostles in the Old Testament? And that brings us to what I've already stated. 
We're looking primarily for new covenant realities, specifically Christ and his gospel and his church. How does the Old Testament point us and reveal to us these things we already know in the New Testament? We are looking for Christ in those scriptures, not job promotions. We are looking for the gospel in those scriptures, not overcoming ailments. We are looking for the fulfillment of promises, the coming of the kingdom, the expanse of the church, the inclusion of the Gentiles, all of these great new covenant realities are what we're searching for in the old. In other words, we're asking the question, how does this narrative in the Old Testament point me and fix my eyes on Christ? And by the way, we have good reason to do that. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. While you turn there, we're going to look at two different passages and then we'll be done. Let me set the stage for you if I can. Jesus has already been crucified and he's already resurrected, but his resurrection hasn't been made public yet. So the believers don't know that Jesus has resurrected. And some of his disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus. So there's this road that led to the town called Emmaus. And they're on that road trying to go to Emmaus. And Jesus, the resurrected Christ, he, he, he approaches them, but he miraculously blinds them from understanding who he is. So they're talking to the resurrected Christ, but they think they're just talking to some stranger. And then Jesus opens their eyes miraculously and gets them to see. And then he rebukes them. For their discouragement, he rebukes them for their sadness because he expected them to know what should have happened. They should have been anticipating a resurrection. And what's the basis upon which Jesus would hold them to know the future? That's what he, that's what he rebukes them for, that they should have known the future. You should have known this was going to happen. What could Jesus possibly have held them accountable to? Look at what he says in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Notice he accompanies the whole Old Testament in this. Right? There, there are some passages that we could rightly have held the, the, the disciples accountable to. You know, the famous Isaiah 53, that's pretty clear. That the Messiah would come and be rejected and suffer for the sins of the people, but the Father would see his offspring and, and see his sacrifice and accept it and be glad. So Isaiah 53, but Jesus doesn't hold them to Isaiah 53. He holds them to the entire prophetic witness, and he even starts with Moses and the prophets. By the way, that was an expression to cover the whole Old Testament. Jesus says, you should have known who I am based on not Isaiah 53, but the entire Bible. The entire Bible is about Jesus. 
Now you'll go through the Bible and you won't see any explicit reference to the name Jesus. You won't see something like a man named Jesus will be born and he will be, live this life. I and mean, you have stuff like the Emmanuel, he'll be God with us, he'll be born of a virgin. There are explicit testimonies. But again, he's calling them to the whole Old Testament. So that means there are things that are not so explicit as Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 53, which still testify to Christ. By the way, he does this again after this encounter. He then meets with the whole group of the disciples. This was a small group. He meets with the whole group later on and look at what he says in verse 44 after he appears to all of the disciples. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. By the way, earlier on the disciples, after Jesus did this to them, they have this phrase in Luke's testimony, did not our hearts burn within us? when he opened our minds to the scriptures. So what does all this tell us? It tells us a few things. Number one, it tells us that the disciples did not truly understand the Old Testament because he had to open their minds. They knew the book. They've been studying it their whole life. They've been reading it their whole life. Yet Jesus still had to give them an understanding. So again, it tells us that a historical, grammatical, literal interpretation isn't just enough because they had that. But there's more to it now that Jesus had to miraculously and mercifully open their eyes to see. But it also tells us what? That the entire Old Testament is ultimately about what? Jesus. And it's everywhere. It's in the first five books of Moses. It's in the Psalms. It's in the prophets. It's all over the place. He's very explicit. Jesus is what the whole Old Testament is about. And we need to see it. We need to find it. That's our job. And it can be abused and it can go wrong. And we debate and we work with each other to get it. But we need to be able to find Christ in all of Scripture. And again, the last thing I'll say just as a way of reminder, notice what does Jesus tell them they should have known? That they were going to overcome their cancer? That they were going to finally find the woman of their dreams? No, Jesus' summary of the Old Testament prophetic witness in verse 46, that Christ should suffer, die, raise, repentance for forgiveness, the proclamation of the gospel, the nations coming to the, to the Lord. That's what I'm looking for in the Old Testament. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for redemption, gospel truths, messianic truths. We want to see Christ and the gospel in the Old Testament. And I would submit to you that when we do this correctly, we will grow an appreciation for the Old Testament like we have never had before. Everyone knows, you just, if you're going to be a Christian, you just have to. Whether you truly believe it in your heart or not, you just have to admit the Old Testament is God's word. But sometimes it doesn't really feel that way. It's not as exciting as all the doctrine of Romans. It's not as exciting as the symbolism and the monsters and the beasts of Revelation. Sometimes it's just law. Sometimes it's just some weird story that I don't get. Sometimes it's bizarre miracles that are hard to square scientifically. The Old Testament can, in our modern contemporary age, be such a burden for us. 
But we need to understand that the Old Testament is an inspired, infallible, inerrant, rich, deep truth. And it's far deeper than any of the Jews ever understood before Christ. They loved the Bible before Jesus came. They'd studied the Bible before Jesus came. But it was when he came that we suddenly had our eyes opened to a whole new layer We see God's hand and his majesty and his providential working and his prophecies and his love. We see it in a level that was never seen before. I would remind you that the Old Testament was the Bible of the apostles. It was the Bible of the early church. It took a while for the New Testament to be written and and copied and put into, for a long period, even in New Testament history, the Old Testament was the primary Bible of the church and that didn't stop them from seeing Christ and preaching Christ. It was brought up in Sunday school about Augustine. You read through Augustine's commentaries on the Psalms and he finds Christ everywhere. The Old Testament is a rich treasure trove of beautiful new covenant realities. And yes, sometimes we have to dig. And sometimes it's not obvious. But that's the fun. That's the glory of how God has revealed himself. And so it is my call that we would treasure not only the gospel and not only Christ, but we would treasure this amazing, providentially inspired book that God has given to us to find Him.